0: I'd like to start by going over one of the little stories I ended with last time, and that was the story of Hueco going to see Bodhidharma in his cave and calling out to him, please, please set my mind at rest, and then Bodhidharma replying, bring me your mind and I'll, I'll set it to rest for you. So Hueco then goes off we don't know for how long and then he returns and says I've searched everywhere for this mind but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma replies you see I've set it to rest for you. Now Bodhidharma um, the supposed bringer of this particular form of meditation practice to China and then from there it goes on to Japan and Korea, gives quite a lot of emphasis to this idea of emptiness. But when he presents it, he doesn't set it up as some kind of um, ultimate reality, some kind of transcendent truth that perhaps underpins... Or underlies the world we live in. Sometimes you read passages that suggest that things arise out of emptiness and return to emptiness. Rather, Bodhidharma sees it as a strategy. And in this particular case, a strategy for setting the mind at rest. We saw also in the last talk how what in a sense prevents us from making any headway in our deeper aspirations. We gave the example last time of of seeking to save the numberless beings of the world. But what stands in the way of even making a, a, a start at that is because we're somehow blocked we come somehow stuck and one of the things that we are particularly stuck around is our very sense of who we are one sense of self one sense of of of, of ego of i and this i think in in some respects is probably the consequence of uh, natural selection that it seems to have served our distant ancestors some advantage by cultivating a very f- firm, clear sense of there being a, a fixed self, a sort of permanent witness or observer that we are convinced intuitively will, <clears throat> will, will keep on, will, will survive, will be the same self next year when the harvest is to be reaped, for example. In other words, we can motivate ourselves to act for our own well-being and those of our, our friends and families because we have this conviction that we are the same person, that I will get the rewards of my acts. Now, Buddhism, of all um, shapes and schools, um, questions this. And, in fact once one starts to do any kind of uh, self-awareness practice, we begin to notice that what seemed to have been so fixed and solid, that sort of permanent viewer, when we try to find it, it is extraordinarily elusive. It's a very strange feeling. That One fixed point, me, this one primary datum of my life, when we begin to probe into our experience, into our bodily sensations, into our feelings, into our perceptions, into our thoughts, into our emotions, all we encounter are fleeting processes, be they physical, be they mental, be they emotional. And the more that we pay attention to these things, the more questionable becomes the idea that there could be anything within this complex of body and mind that is in any way fixed or permanent or static. And the same is true also of our sense of my mind, because very often we even think sometimes that what I really am is not my body, but something to do with my my spirit or my consciousness, uh, my inner awareness. And here we have Bodhidharma saying, well, if you look for your mind, you won't find anything. That you can keep on going. That there's a kind of an infinity within ourselves, where we don't arrive at something, me, or the mind, neither do we arrive at nothing. That, I think, is, is the crucial point. Often it's felt that Buddhism is rather nihilistic because this sense of emptiness we take to mean some equivalent of, of nothingness or, or das nichts. Nothing at all. But that's not what the Buddha is saying. It's not what Zen is saying at all. What they're pointing to is a kind of middle way between being and nothingness. So that when you search for something in this kind of existential way, whether it be the self, whether it be the mind, whether it be anything at all, you don't arrive at some kind of uh, baseline where you can say ah now that's what I really am but nor do you arrive at nothing at all you just keep on going there is in a way I think something similar when we look at the scientific research in the course of our lifetimes for the ultimate constituents of matter back in the 60s or 70s, when one first became aware of this, they were talking about atoms and electrons and neutrons. And since then, they've moved on quite some way. And now the, the Holy Grail is called the, I think it's called the Hosen-Biggs oh. particle? Higgs-Boson Higgs Higgs boson particle, yes. Which nobody's found yet, but they're fairly convinced that well, they're fairly confident that the current experiments being done at CERN with the big collider might reveal this thing. Now, I may be a skeptic, but I have the funny feeling that even if they find the Higgs boson particle, that that too will probably break down into something even smaller, even a more infinitesimal Um. And this has been the the, the course of this inquiry so far, that each time we seem to get to some ultimate, we find that the math still doesn't work. And we arrive, as it were, at another starting point. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a scientist. But in any case, at least as far as that research has taken us so far, it seems curiously... Uh, consistent and 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 uh, compatible with what B- the Buddhist texts have been speaking about for hundreds of years, namely that if you if you if you probe into the nature of who you are or your mind, you don't arrive at something and you don't arrive at nothing. You get the first glimpse of this back in the Pali Canon. There's a famous exchange between the Buddha. And a wanderer called Vachagota, who's a familiar character who pops up quite a lot. He's a kind of a skeptic, he's not a Buddhist, and yet he asks some rather good questions. He comes up to the Buddha one day and says, So what do you teach, Master Gautama? That there is a self? And the Buddha remains silent. Ah, then, Master Gautama, you teach that there is no self. And the Buddha remains silent. So Vachagota stands up, walks off, dissatisfied. And then Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, turns to the Buddha and says, well, why didn't you say something? And the Buddha said, well, if I had said that there was a self, Vachagota would have fallen into the extreme view of eternalism or permanence. And if I said there was no self, he would have fallen into the extreme position of nihilism or annihilationism. In other words, any kind of categorical yes or no, a or not a, is or is not, is bound to lead to um, contradictions or or, or, or an untenable position. And so the idea of the middle way, and we 're not talking here of, of the Eightfold path, but rather the middle way in a more in a more philosophical sense um, is that it is in fact a kind of a movement within the very core of our experience of our existence that is quite uh, freed from the the blockages or the stuckness of I am this or I am not this, or self or not self. Emptiness does not refer to some some sort of state we might arrive at one day, something that we might, as it were, somehow have some mystical vision of. Uh, that is a complete error. Bodhidharma is also well known for his exchange with a fellow called the Emperor Wu of Liang. We don't know anything about this guy except that he was some, probably some petty tyrant or warlord in 6th century China. And uh, monks, as was the case then, would be summoned to these courts and asked questions and tested out. And if they did well, they might be given a monastery or a or a... Bowl of rice or something. <laughs> In any case, uh, Bodhidharma goes to see Emperor Wu of Liang. And Emperor Wu of Liang actually thinks of himself as a rather good person. He's, he's done a lot of dana to the Buddhist community. And he asks Bodhidharma, What is the meaning of the holy truths of Buddhism? And Bodhidharma answers, Unholy emptiness unholy emptiness. Now the holy truths probably refer to the Four Noble Truths, we don't really know. But nonetheless, there is in the emperor's mind the idea that there's something somehow special and sacred and holy and true. And when Bodhidharma is asked to say what that is, he in a way subverts the whole question by saying unholy Emptiness. That this emptiness is not sacred, it's not holy, Uh, it's nothing to be revered or worshipped. It is simply um, a, a letting go, a dropping away of certain fixed attachments and views and ideas. We have probably the most well-known exponent of emptiness in the figure of uh, Nagarjuna. He lived in the 2nd century AD and therefore about three or 400 years before Bodhidharma and he's also considered to be a patriarch of the Chan tradition, the 13th or the 14th depending on how you do your math. Uh, It's probably not the case. But in any way, he is incorporated into this lineage. And I find that what he has to say about emptiness is likewise very helpful. Um, There's a famous verse, I can't remember in which chapter it comes from, where he says, um, Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. Emptiness is letting go of ditty, views, opinions, positions. Believers in emptiness, in other words, people who have some kind of idea that it is something, and it's very difficult given language, human language, for us not to imagine that something for which there is a name, emptiness, corresponds to some state of affairs in the world or some state of affairs beyond the world. We raise it up to what I referred to the other day as a privileged religious object. Human beings love doing this. They like to pick some bit of reality and ratchet it up to some kind of ultimate status, that they call God or emptiness, and then revere it somehow. Zen is very much in the business of dismantling those sorts of conceits. In the Western tradition, we've taken the notion of person and elevated that to somehow a... um, an account of what God is, God the Father, the Son. We've taken very much the image of the person as our our preferred motif. And then we think of the ultimate truth as somehow having characteristics of a person. In India, the tendency has not been so much to elevate the notion of person, but it's been far more to elevate the notion of mind or consciousness or awareness. And you can always tell when this is going on because consciousness or awareness or mind will be privileged with a a capital letter at the front. It'll be awareness with a big A. Or it'll be called pure awareness. In other words, taking a feature of our phenomenal world and then somehow imagining that to correspond to some reality that is not of our everyday experience. It's not of our ordinary world, our ordinary life. And so you have the idea of of Atman or Brahman in Hinduism or in Vedanta specifically, which again takes has this idea that underpinning the totality of this phenomenal world is some kind of divine unity, some kind of transcendent awareness, which is intimately identical with that which lies at the very heart of oneself. In other words, some idea of God. Now, Buddhism has from the outset been very uh, suspicious and skeptical of such assumptions and has sought to find a way of living a a, a full human life, uh, a spiritual life, if you prefer that word, even a religious life, without having to make any assumptions of that sort at all but but, but, uh, confining oneself in one's meditations, in one's thinking, in one's ethics, to what is actually apparent in the phenomenal world. Minds, persons, bodies, all of the numerous things that Buddhists love enumerating and listing. They're all to do with this world, with this changing, tragic and ultimately impersonal uh, complex of phenomena and the relations that somehow weave them together. And there's not felt to be any need at all for some kind of metaphysical ground to kind of keep the whole thing intact. The great magic or mystery of this view is that everything coheres and makes sense and is ordered and follows laws without anything or any one or any transcendent God somehow running the show or keeping it going. So when Nagarjuna says uh, emptiness is letting go of opinions, he's not suggesting at all that emptiness is a kind of substitute, ultimate reality, out of which things emerge and into which they then return. But rather, emptiness is just a way of describing something that takes place within us when we begin to unblock or release those core fixations and attachments we have around our sense of self, around our uh, our fears, our greeds, our hatreds, all of these Emotions and mental states are kind of fixations that try to resist the fact that the world is profoundly impermanent, it is continuously undergoing change, it is uh, utterly contingent and conditional, arising from previous causes, circumstances, and in turn generating future effects. There is just one uh, ongoing flow. But for whatever reasons probably a lot of them neurobiological, psychological, etc., cetera, etc cetera, fear of death we prefer to kind of uh, deny that, uh, that fluid nature of experience, and instead become fixated around some core idea of identity, me me and you, us and them, right and wrong, etc. Now from, from, from Nagarjuna's point of view, from, from Bodhidharma's point of view, this keeps us somehow uh, locked into a very um, uh, uh, confined, very constrained, uh, very uptight uh, and ultimately very uh, unsatisfying condition. There's no room for movement. There's no room for real transformation or change. So when we do this practice, what is this, with its implicit corollary of I don't know, I think what we are doing really is we are practicing emptiness. Perhaps we should even question whether the word emptiness is even appropriate. It is a literal translation. Shunya-ta, shunya-empty, and ta makes that adjective into an abstract noun. So it's quite an accurate translation, but it's misleading. And it's misleading even in terms of Nagarjuna's own definition of it, because he doesn't describe it as a state, as any kind of thing, however subtle, but rather he describes it as a letting go. Emptiness is the letting go of views. It's the falling away of something. It's the the dropping off of something. And I think that all forms of, of meditation practice, at least within the Buddhist tradition, are in the business of helping us create the circumstances whereby certain fixations and stucknesses are allowed to fall away. And again I say allowed to fall away rather than things we have to somehow get rid of or abandon because that implies a kind of willful rejection of something which I don't think actually makes any sense. I think all we can do is create the conditions for certain changes, certain um, habits uh, to fall away. So when we ask, what is this? And we acknowledge that we don't know. We are, as it were, wearing away or or chipping away at the fact that we do not know who I am. We do not know what this is, this world. And the more we ask that question within our depths, the more that we acknowledge that we really don't know then hopefully, at least over time, that might begin to erode as a kind of process of attrition, fixity of views, fixity of opinion, so that our minds become that much more open, that much more um, curious, that much more attuned to the sheer strangeness of things, or we might prefer the sheer mystery that we're here at all, that this is happening. So I see this practice very much as an emptying. And perhaps that would be a better word to use than emptiness, because emptying suggests process. And as we saw also last, the last talk, the Four Noble Truths appear to be structured in this way too if we think of them as tasks, then it's a task of knowing our existential condition, dukkha, which leads to a falling away, a letting go of what's called grasping or craving, the second truth, which leads to moments of stopping, which leads to the possibility of another way of life. We're talking here of a process that culminates in another way of being in this world, and again, I think perhaps that might have been what Bodhidharma had in mind when he answered the emperor, you know, what are the holy truths? The emperor's waiting for some kind of disquisition on Buddhism and all he gets is this unholy emptiness. And again, if we think of emptiness as this ongoing let, letting go of opinions and fixed views and egotistic conceits, through our probing into the nature of what's in our minds, in our bodies, in our world, and noticing the fluid, um, conditional nature of things. That's what the Four Noble Truths are about, an emptying, an unholy emptying, just a dropping away. We don't need to revert to these pious perceptions of things being somehow sacred. Zen is very good at that. Another example, and this comes from one of the classic Zen texts, and it concerns two Zen monks, uh, Chan monks, strictly speaking, who were disciples of Matsu. Matsu was the um, second generation after Hueneng. You have Hueneng, then you have, he was the sixth patriarch, then you have Huai Zhang, the seventh, Matsu. Is the eighth in that line. He's a very, he's a very well-known teacher. And then uh, there are two disciples called Kung and Hui To, I think. And anyway, these two guys are having, a, are having a conversation. And one of them says, Do you know how to seize emptiness? And the other one doesn't say anything but just goes... And the other monk says, you don't know how to seize emptiness. How do you do it then? And so the first one grabs the second guy's nose and pulls it. And he says, hey, ow, ow, you're going to pull off my nose. And the first monk says, there's no other way to be able to seize emptiness. (laughs) Now what I like about that is that it again puts the... um, uh, the experience of this emptiness uh, firmly within the, 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 the concrete um, sensations of in this case Shi Tao's nose in other words it's directly linked to an actual experience of pain it's not some metaphysical idea that you can very cleverly in a sort of zenny way do something like that which is again You would think that was a fairly good sort of answer. But it's, in a sense, rejected in favor of an actual physical assault on another person. The experience of pain. In other words, this emptying is directly related to what it is that causes pain. Not of noses being tweaked, but rather a more existential pain. Uh, that pain that comes from our own inability to let go of this kind of uh, attachment, this, this constriction we have of being me, which is painful in the end. It cuts us off from others, it makes us feel alienated, it makes us feel somehow um, not part of the world, isolated, lonely, bored all for the sake of being able to have this secure sense of being me. So emptying is about the erosion, the wearing away, the, the ongoing kind of uh, deconstruction of this sense of, of I, this sense of fixity. Now very often... Uh, Buddhist texts um, tend to remain in this sort of via negativa language this path of negation and sometimes that gives us the impression that it's just about letting go and that's kind of the end and then if we let go enough something is let gone and that's cessation or stopping or nirvana and that's sometimes seen as, as the goal of Buddhist practice. I don't think it is. I think those moments of stopping are actually the the beginning of something else. They're the opening or the Dharma gates to another way of life. You know, another way of life here and now. The Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth. When we come to this very well-known Chan teacher, Lin Chi. Uh, in Japanese he's known as Rinzai. Lin Chi lived in the ninth century in China and is the founder of one of the, the what are called the, the houses of Zen, one of the main lin- lineages, which still exists, it's this tra- tradition that survives in Korea today, and it's one of the two main traditions that survive in Japan and China. Now Lin Chi is noted for his rather abrupt, one might even say, aggressive style of teaching. And there's a, there's a, there's a famous story, which you find in his record, which goes as as follows. That Lynchi one day was giving a teaching to an assembly of monks. And he says... In the face of each one of you, there is a true person of no status going in and out of your face all the time. Those of you who have not noticed this, look. And then some member of the audience uh, puts up his hand and says, "Um, Excuse me, could you tell me some more about this true person of no status? So Lynchy jumps off his seat, runs over to this guy, grabs him by the lapels, and says, Speak! Speak! And the monk hesitates. And Lynchy then pushes him aside and says, What a dried-up piece of shit is that true person of no status. And then he goes off back to his room. (laughs) This is a very characteristic of this approach. Now, you might have noticed that Martin and I don't do this. <laughs> we're we're Zen soft, <laughs> um, and again, we might even get into trouble with the Charity Commissioners if we did start beating people up in this way. But. Um, <clears throat> I think these stories, however true they are, and I don't see why not, um, make a rather forceful point. Now, this idea of a true person of no status, sometimes it's translated as a true person of no rank uh, or true person of no position. Again, we can begin to sort of see where it's going. It's, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's a person and it's all of us um, without the constraints of hesitation. And what is striking in the story is that the monk hesitates. He doesn't say something. He goes, uh, uh, or whatever. As no doubt we might. What Lynch is interested in is somehow waking up um, the, the person who is unconstrained by position, by views, by fixed ideas, the person who's somehow engaged in an emptying, a letting go, who's not tied to a concept of who they are in terms of, of their social rank, would be one thing, or their position in the monastery, or how, how they should appear in the eyes of other people and what will other people think. All of those things that effectively act as breaks or um, blocks or hindrances on our being able to somehow express ourselves and respond to the world um, in an unconstrained and uncontrived way. We might think, you know, in our own culture of, of the artist, for example, someone who is somehow liberated at some level from uh, constraint, from from the, from the fear of being derivative, whatever it might be. And I think we value that. We value this kind of spontaneity, the kind of uh, aliveness. There's a great sense of vitality in that sort of uh, immediate responsiveness. And that, I think, is a very good image that somehow lets us go beyond this idea of Buddhism talking just about emptiness and letting go. The emptiness and the letting go are only of any use or any value if they free us up, if they somehow release us uh, to be more present, to be more responsive, to be less defined by our beliefs and our views and our opinions our history, our past, and to be able to completely engage you know, with whatever the current conditions of our life throw at us. And life is, of course, the great Zen master because life is throwing us wobblies and googlies all the time, um, constantly. That's the real teacher, in a way, not some ninth century Chan master called Lin Chi who's long dead but what really serves as our our primary provocation uh, is our own existence and the world we live in and yet how often do we retreat from that or shy away from that in uh, adopting a kind of conventional persona or perspective or uh, being a good Buddhist or something or a good Christian or a good Muslim or a good conservative or a good member of the labor party or something we, we, we are very stuck in our or at least I am maybe you aren 't very stuck in in these in, in in these ideas we have about ourselves and it 's not easy to somehow find freedom from that now i 'd like to conclude with some with an example of someone from our own culture who I think came to a very, very similar insight and experience uh, without any um, knowledge of Buddhism or Zen or anything. And that is um, the poet Keats, John Keats. This is what he has to say about the poetical character In other words, the character that of a person that is poetic. And I think we can see poetic almost as like the true person of no status, the poetical character. He says, as to the poetical character itself, it is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as it does an Imogen. Those two Shakespearean characters. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. Now, um, I find these sorts of passages, and this is a passage written by, this is written in 1818. Keats would have been 21. And he's writing these letters, this is a passage from a letter, he's writing them, I don't know to whom this one is written, possibly his brother George in America. And he writes these letters at speed. He's not sitting down composing something for publication. These are just almost stream of consciousness reflections, and they're quite extraordinary. I mean, here we get ideas that are just so resonant with what we've been speaking of. The poetical character is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade lives in gusto, which means like enthusiasm, be it foul or fair, whether it's miserable or pleasant, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. What shocks the virtuous philosopher, substitute virtuous Buddhist, virtuous religious thinker, virtuous person who thinks that somehow they've got it all sorted out in their Systems of metaphysics and, uh, and doctrine delights the chameleon poet, chameleon, in other words something that is constantly changing its color, its appearance in order to blend in, to adapt to the situation at hand and there's something poetic about that. And the the, the, the the poetic, which I think is <clears throat> is, is marvelously embodied in Keats, uh, for me more than any other poet that I can think of, really, um, you know, finds his expression in these um, extraordinary verses, which seem almost um, uh, almost unimaginable, as springing from this young uh, tubercular kid. Now, when Keats talks about the process, again, he talks a lot in his letters about the creative process itself. And one of his um, descriptions of this, he says, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. That's his definition of what he calls negative capability. Negative capability. That is when a man or person is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Now frankly, I can't find a better definition of the meditation we've been doing than this. What we've been trying to do is to be in, un- stay with uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. In other words, grasping at answers. But being capable of, of resting in uncertainty and doubt, mystery. Slight qualification. The word irritable here... It mean, didn't mean for Keats what it means for us today. Irritable for us means being slightly pissed off. Irritable for Keats, and Keats, remember, was a medical student. Um, irritable meant um, reflexive. A limb would, would, is said to be irritable if it, um, if it responds to a sudden uh, knock or bump or something. I'm it would reflexively act. And that, I think, again, is, is very, very uh, accurate in terms of how our grasping after fact and reason is almost a kind of reflexive. It's a reflex. It's something you don't even have to consciously will yourself to do. It just happens. It's a reflex. Like when you tap your knee, your leg will jump on. So when you say, what is this? There's a reflexive reaching for fact or reason. We want what we're doing to make sense, to be reasonable. We'd like very much to have some sort of answer. Instead of simply seeking to find that negative capability of being in uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts. Now for Keats, he's not describing a form of... uh, Meditation practice uh, that would have been completely outside his world but what he is describing is the condition in which he finds himself when he is as it were uh, preparing or considering the world from a poetic perspective in the in the process of creating poetry that he's describing a very similar frame of mind, one in which we have let go of fixity and uh, egoism, uh, notion of self, in order that we can somehow then respond to the world in a more imaginative, a playful, a spontaneous way that is not constrained by our reaching after fact and reason. Now to me, this seems very close indeed to uh, what Lynchi and Bodhidharma and Nagarjuna are pointing to in other words, this is a practice that need not be privileged with the notion of some sort of religiosity or or, or veneration um, but actually, this is an entirely secular way of living, a way of living in this world with in a way in which we let go of what hinders or uh, constrains us uh, and open up to what liberates and and frees us, not in an abstract way, but in a way that has an impact on our actual uh, words and acts and thoughts in relation to the suffering of this world, or simply in relation to this world. So, I'll pin this piece of paper on the board if you want to copy it. Um, these texts are also found in my book, uh, Verses from the Center, in the introduction. Um, there are some questions. One of them I think I answered. Um, <clears throat> Zen can be seen as a radical project of dismantling and remaking the self. Is it possible that the version of Zen that you and Martine offer is largely palliative and not radical enough? (laughs) Maybe. (coughs) That might be true. Um, uh, Then someone asked about privileged religious object, which I also covered. And there's something more. This is more about... uh, I'll deal with this one later. Are there any other points anyone would like to raise? Yes? Boredom? Yeah. Ah. Um, well, it's, it's the, there's, there's not, there's certainly nowhere in Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese, a word in those classical languages that we would translate as boredom. That is true. And so one has the impression that possibly people in those, those times were never bored. I find that a little hard to believe. Um... It's nonetheless certainly the case that it wasn't, sufficiently much, it wasn't sufficient of a problem to generate a discourse about it, whereas clearly greed and hatred were. But I've often wondered about this, and I wonder, in fact, whether what we call moha, usually it's translated as delusion, whether the accompanying affect of delusion is boredom. Actually, I wonder if moha isn't actually a form of boredom. Um, it's, it's, it's described, I mean, the word in Tibetan is dimuk, which implies a kind of mental fog, a fogginess. Um, you know, we talk a lot about greed and hatred because they're kind of easy, but what do we mean when we say delusion? It's very vague. Uh, and my sense is that when we're not actively sort of trying to get something, or when we're not actively trying to get rid of something, then we rest in a kind of lethargy and boredom and dullness. And one of the great attractions of desire and hatred, because they give us something to do, <laughs> where they activate us. And if we're not activated, we, 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 are, we are in moha. Now, delusion, to me, doesn't quite make it here, because I don't quite know what that means. And since both greed and hatred have clearly strong affective dimensions, and those are not just... Mental games—they—they they, they somehow are—you know—we feel them in our bodies. I'd—I've li- always liked to think that Moha likewise has a similar affect, our a- affective dimension, which I think we might describe as boredom, dullness, lethargy, um, being at a complete loose end, just being sort of dull and listless in the face of things. But other, but in terms of a specific concept, which um, is one I think for many of us, boredom is, is, is a major problem in our lives. And um, I think it is only probably since the 19th century that boredom has somehow been uh, elevated to the status of uh, something uh, you know seriously troubling, with something we really don't like. And I wonder if the first person to really point this out is, is Baudelaire in his poems the Les Fleurs du Mal, where, of course, he defines Satan, le démon, uh, the devil, as l'ennui, as boredom. And, in fact, his, the, the, the beautiful opening um, poem in Les Fleurs du Mal is basically a declaration that the devil today is boredom. Um, uh, I'm trying to pronounce it. He says this um, he, he calls it this sensitive, this delicate monster who could swallow the world in a yawn. <laughs> it's mar- it's marvelous stuff, um, but I think he really gets it. I think he nails it on the head that he recognizes that uh, the demonic today is less to do at least for many of us in what you called a you know industrial modern bureaucratized society um what is really demonic about that society um, where so many of our our needs are taken care of in a way um, where we have a relatively good life expectancy where we have a social net, you know so, so, social services and endless television to entertain us um Our our spiritual malaise uh, is less a sense of feeling sinful, let's say, um, but rather a sense of feeling meaningless. Our lives have no purpose, no sense, and affectively that is experienced as boredom. So I feel that it would be incumbent upon a contemporary Buddhist discourse to develop a, uh, a language around boredom to try to somehow articulate that, Uh, I think Baudelaire is a good place to begin. But so much of, I mean, Kafka, uh, Beckett, all of this is a lot, it's all about boredom in a way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.